You are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Martire and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. For our first ever episode, I interviewed Dave Sharp, founder of Vanity Projects, a Melbourne-based consultancy helping architects navigate the world of marketing and social media. We talked about the pros and cons of social media and how architects can take advantage of new technologies, as well as some shining examples of successful practices. Today we're here with Dave Sharp of Vanity Projects, an architecture marketing consultant out of Melbourne, Australia. Thanks, Dave, for being on the show. Uh, that's okay, Anna. Thank you for having me. So today we're talking about architecture and social media. And the first question I want to ask you is, why would an architect get on social media? I think that architects generally get on social media for the attention. And I mean that in the best possible way. We do really good work and we spend so much time thinking about making it as great as it can possibly be. We get photos taken and we want we want there to be an audience for that work. We want people to see our ideas and whether they are just people in our industry or potential clients or just society generally, um, you know, you, you do something good and you want, you want people to see it. Uh, eventually that sort of thing turns into business results, but really it's that attention that I think a lot of architects are looking for. And if it's being backed up by really good work, then that's amazing. Um, why social media comes into it though is that, I don't necessarily say social media has any very special feature necessarily that makes it different to magazines or awards or any other place that architecture used to get published. It's just another place where people go to spend their time and see, see great architecture. Everybody who's out there looking for amazing architectural ideas are spending their time on social media. Um, and it makes, means a, it's a really good alternative for architects because like I... Uh, I had a client that I was working with who spent, you know, the last two or three years posting pretty regularly on Instagram and they've been posting good photography, not even from their newest projects. They've been going back and revisiting some older projects that um, were built a few years ago and they've grown to a pretty substantial sized audience that they they really control or have some amount of control over and that they can post as often as they want. Um, they've grown to about 40,000 followers and but the really interesting thing is that they reach about 150,000 people a month and I'm blown away by that number. Like I've never seen like, that's pro probably the most far reaching architecture firm that I've seen recently. And, you know, there's a, the number one architecture magazine in Australia is only read by about 10,000 people and it only comes mm -hmm. out four times a year. And you have to be very, very lucky to get a spot in that magazine. Mm -hmm. You really have to do the best work in the country to, to get a, even a, a tiny bit of space in there. Then you've got these just everyday architecture firms and there are hundreds of them who have very, very big audiences on social media and they don't need to rely on anybody, really. They are a little bit attached to what happens to the social media platforms, but they are kind of the captains of their own ship and I love it. So we'll get into the details of this a little later, but the, the example you just referred to with 40,000 followers, just for my curiosity and my audience's sake what's the uh, handle you're talking about if you can share this yeah it's um ntf architecture 
So can you describe for us some shining examples of architects who did very well on social media and why? So there's like a bit of a distinction, I think, between architects that have done really well on social media because they've been good at social media and architects that have done really well through social media because their work has done really well on social media. And there's a bit of a difference, and I've got a couple of examples. Um, In Australia, there is an architect called Andrew Maynard who has personally always done very well on social media. He discovered Twitter when it, like the first year it came out and years before any other architect was on Twitter, he was building up a big audience on Twitter. Then he did the same thing on Instagram. Now he's doing the same thing on YouTube and he's always moving ahead of the industry and, and gathering up this enormous audience of people because the general society moves onto these social media platforms so quickly, but architects can sometimes be really slow to get there. But he's always been able to do that and he's built this fantastic audience and this, this very loyal fan base of um, families, people with kids in the residential space primarily. And they will now follow him to any new platform. He could open up a Snapchat account tomorrow and he could have 5,000 to 10,000 followers on Snapchat by the next day. So I think of him as a fantastic example. Um, but then I think there's on, on the other side of the coin, there's kind of classic examples like Bjarke Ingels. Now, Bjarke I don't believe is technically very good at social media. I think he's very open and transparent and he posts frequently and he does really well. But what really made Biake um, well-known and built an enormous following for him was Ted um, and his Ted talk and that Ted talk going incredibly viral on Facebook. So that was seen by millions and millions of people and that brought an enormous audience to him that liked his ideas, they liked the way that he thought and mm-hmm. they've stuck with him over time and they follow him on any platform just like Andrew Maynard. The final example is an architect I used to work for in Japan called Takahara Tezuka and he did a very popular TED talk um, mm-hmm. called the best kindergarten in the world or something mm-hmm. like that about his kindergarten project. And Takahara Tezuka is now somewhat of a famous architect and he does not have, I don't think his firm has a Facebook page. They don't have Instagram. They don't have Twitter. They have no social media, but his videos and his content, his projects and that TED talk have collectively gotten hundreds of millions of views on Facebook Mm -hmm. and really solidified him as an enormously, um, you know, a really a shining example of what social media can do for an architecture firm. So, so to sort of summarize on the one side you've got people that really understand how the platform works day to day but you've just got as successful architects on the other side who understand what type of content works really well on social media they don't actually have to personally be the one driving it day to day but they create work and and talk about it in a way that they know that social media will really love like to take that story and spread it so it raises an interesting question because I'm I'm very familiar with Andrew Maynard and I've been following him on and off for years. I'm also fairly familiar with the other two you've mentioned. Mm. And to me, it sounds like they were able each in their own way to leverage uh, whatever platform they were on. So Andrew Maynard, which is basically any social media platform and the mm-hmm. other two, just Ted and some other platforms that they got viral on. But it seems like they're all three of them are very smart architects who have very strong opinions and are not afraid mm-hmm. to put them out there. And And I'm wondering if it's more a function of being vocal about what they believe in and sticking by it yes. by year over year as opposed to being specifically on a social media platform. Yeah, they have like a consistent um, message or worldview that they their work supports like the way if you were writing an essay you'd have a thesis and then you bring in research and examples you know they they don't do work and then figure out what to say about it they have something they're already saying and then they do work that fits and Mm -hmm. so all three of those guys have very strong opinions Andrew Maynard talks about suburbia being broken and communities being broken he's got a very sort of neoliberal kind of you know, um, academic take on, on that sort of stuff. Um, Takahara Tezuka talks about um, children and young people and what they need to grow and be happy. Um, Bjark Ingalls talks about um, the environment and the city and, and these kinds of things. So they have these narratives that are, that are much bigger than architecture and I think that's the key for the success of the three of them. They have figured out a way to talk about their work in a way that can relate uh, and have a big impact with non-architects. And so social media works extremely well for them because people can, they can have a conversation with people from any walk of life. You know, I even working at Tezuka's office, um, 
I will often be having dinner with people like my parents' friends who are just maybe their teachers or maybe their, you know, whatever. And they'll bring up that they've seen that video doing the rounds again on Facebook and all their friends are commenting on it. And just ordinary people can really engage with architecture um, in that way. So you're right. It's, you get, you, you tend to get known for a message that is supported by work. Um, and that will translate across any platform. If you build a really, you know, um, potent following on one platform, as long as those two social media channels are somewhat similar in terms of the content that you produce, mm-hmm. that audience will just follow you all the way across to the other platform as well, or the next one, you know, that comes out in a year's time. So what would be the most common mistakes you see architects and designers make on social media? Uh, I think at the macro level, I think the mistake that most architects make is they wait too long and they wait for everybody else to be doing it before they start doing it. So um, social media platforms can become a very crowded trade. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of people can be trying to compete over the same number of, um, you know, viewers and and audience in one platform. And so I find, you know, it's 2019 and there are still a lot of architects talking to me about whether or not they should start an Instagram account. Mm -hmm. Now they they are very late to the party and it's not like social media's, not going to happen for them, but I just wouldn't go on Instagram. It's kind of already, it's already worn out. I think mm-hmm. if you're not there and you're not, or you haven't already developed an audience. So, so yeah, to, to keep it short, I think that, I think that waiting for confirmation from the rest of the industry before you do something or employ a certain strategy or tactic is really the single biggest mistake. Um, I think it's really helpful for architects to keep their eye on other industries. What are, what are more fast moving industries like, graphic designing, creative strategy, um, technology and marketing doing. Uh, and you'll usually find strategies and examples of approaches that work years before your industry starts applying them. And it may take a, it may take a while. You might be a little early to the party, but that's okay. I think it's all right to be early. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other, um, the other, I think, major issue is just our general, um, our general perfectionism about the presentation of our brand and our portfolio and our work and um, which is fine. I mean, you, if you want your, you want that quality to sort of shine through in every aspect of your company and that makes sense. But um, really uh, anybody, even a social ex- social media expert or guru or whatever that, that thinks that they can tell you that they know how social media works and which post is going to do well and which one isn't, they're, they're, they're pretty much just lying to you. Like no one, we never really know what's going to do well. I never know. I could look at five different images and a client might ask me which one will do best on Instagram. And I, I'm always surprised by the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it puts, you know, so, so the lesson I think from that is that it just, you need to take a lot of swings at the bat and, and put out a lot more content than you probably feel comfortable with mm-hmm. because a lot of it, a lot of it's not going to really get seen by that many people, but mm-hmm. that one in 10, that outlying post will get seen by a hundred times what the typical post gets seen by. So you never know what that's going to be. And we try to, we try to stage and prepare the release of our projects. like we're releasing them in the newspaper and in a magazine and that everything is just guaranteed, but there are no guarantees in social media, whether that's, you could pick the wrong time of day, the wrong day of the week, the wrong image, anything, any little factor could come into play that could totally, you know, sink the debut of your new project. So instead, I think, think about how you can break your, break your work down and your process down into smaller little chunks and be testing more of a variety of different kinds of things. Um, and, and don't, don't feel bad if, if a, a post doesn't do well or you post something and it doesn't get many likes or nobody really shares. And most of the time what we share just gets ignored on social media, mm-hmm. but it, you'll be rewarded by the kind of consistency and experimentation of when posts do really well, they'll do very, very well. So yeah, those are some of the mistakes. Uh, so a lot of people um, who are arguably very famous and have a huge following on social media, and I'm thinking particularly of Joe Rogan, for example, who's not in yeah. our industry, but mm-hmm. um, he always says, if I'm not mistaken, um, post and walk away because mm. the structure of social media and based on the likes and, and all the, the kind of artificial interaction that people have mm-hmm. with uh, social media and the posts is just a, more of a cause of uh, headaches and, and depression and all sorts of negative emotions. Then, then it is a positive thing. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I, I, read a, I, read a, I read a very good essay recently by a digital marketer called Eugene Way, and I think I got the name right, but it was about social media as status as a service, that what the platform is really selling is status, and that social media in a lot of ways is a status game like the popularity at high school. And invariably in a market of status and popularity, there's going to be winners and losers. And it's even, even a winner like Joe Rogan, sometimes, you know, the, the head that bears the crown, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of stressful. He's a magnet for a lot of drama and a lot of criticism. And I think that Mm -hmm. even if you're at the top, it's sort of a new set of troubles. And if you're at the bottom, you're just posting and no one's recognizing the good work that you're doing. And that can be very, that can be quite stressful as well. So Look, I think for a, for a business, an architecture firm that's thinking about social media, uh, a lot of the time we're not really attaching our personal brands to our social media, which if I was to add another mistake, social media mistake architects make, I'd probably say that's one as well to actually mm-hmm. to market on social media through the, through the brand of your company is not as ideal as just going, hi, I'm Dave, this is my content. But um, we tend to avoid the personal on social media. So in a lot of ways where... I think as an industry, immune from the possibilities, but also um, immune from some of the dangers as well. We kind of get to play this middle ground a little bit where we're not personally feeling that invalidated by the reactions and the comments and the trolls and that sort of stuff. It doesn't affect us as quite as badly, mm-hmm. but it also means we have a bit of a ceiling over our heads about how well we can possibly do. So, um, But different architects see it differently. I, I work with a number of clients who just see their, um, see their Instagram account as successful as it might be, maybe it has 50,000 followers, but they don't really give it much mind and they see it as almost like the phone book. They just think of it as a place business comes from and they don't get emotionally attached to it a lot of the time. But those same architects, if they get snubbed for an award or a magazine, they're very upset about that. So <laughs> they, get, they get their status in different ways, right? Yeah. But then there are some architects, particularly emerging firms, who are extremely sensitive to how their content does on Instagram and sometimes they can get what you know uh, what they call in like shooting sports target panic they get panicked you know about it, it takes a couple of a couple of bum posts and a few negative comments and they start getting really discouraged from posting more of their work or they start adapting their strategy based on some tiny amount of negative feedback mm-hmm. so yeah there's definitely um aspects of anxiety and it plays into people's sense of self-worth in the industry, I think. But, you know, look, I think magazines did the same thing. Um, Newspapers did the same thing in a lot of ways for different firms. The difference here is that I think you have now access with social media to an audience of people who will be fans of your work. Facebook and Instagram are working 24-7 to try and figure out how it can keep people engaged with the platform. And if they like the work that you're doing, the platform will do everything that it can to get that to them as quickly and as often as possible. So you will be able to find a kind of a core audience of true fans on social media. It may only be 50 to 100 people. They really could be, but um, it's still meaningful. So that that's a perfect segue into uh, a subject that's dear to me because I've I've been educating myself on the let's call it the dangers of social media and especially how social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are designed to keep people on the platform as long as possible mm-hmm. without regard for uh, mental health and well-being of people, which can lead to very dangerous situations especially with young people and there's there's documented evidence that yep. um it can be as addictive as alcohol and drugs and mm-hmm. so in and of itself it's not necessarily a bad thing but without kind of mindfulness around it i think it can be very dangerous and i've certainly experienced it myself where there's been times uh where i've been completely hooked and i was on instagram all day and mm. I've, I, I don't do that anymore because it's, it's a waste of time but it's very challenging to get out of this spiral right you get a, mm. once you're hooked and you're like oh my god i got 150 likes on this picture and then i got 600 likes on this one and now this one is getting 20 it's like mm. what am i doing wrong and and what what what's going on it's really weird it it, it fucks with you yeah so um how uh, here's a kind of a double um mm-hmm. double question how does uh, social media first fit into an overall business development strategy for a design business and how does one go about not falling into the traps of social media as they're designed uh to create like basically create 
the maximum engagement possible? Mm, those are two very good questions. Uh, I think first with the business development strategy, it really depends on your architecture firm. Are you business facing? Are you consumer facing? Which vertical are you interested in? Are you doing houses? Are you doing cafes? That really affects how you use it as a strategy. But broadly speaking, um, it also depends on your content. If you're just, you know, just getting professional photography of your finished projects and that the predominant output of your architecture practice in a year is photos. Um, my recommendation about how you should use LinkedIn is somewhat limited by that. You know, um, mm -hmm. you, if you're a writer and you're not playing as much in the kind of visual aesthetic realm, but you're thinking more about ideas and research and insights um, or even, and getting a little bit more political with your work, then I think that your strategy will be completely different to another firm. So I think that's something where general advice is hard, but you're trying to you're trying to marry up who is your ideal client, what kind of content are they going to find most valuable or is going to be most persuasive to them. Um, if you're trying to, if your ideal client is the government and you want to do schools, um, Instagram and and awesome photos of schools you've designed is probably not going to be you know your best inroad into that. So there's there's different avenues that are more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about that. Um, but I think that business development really, to me, reminds me of what I spend a lot more time doing in terms of I'm very focused on a particular business niche. All of my clients are architects. They're mm -hmm. not all in one place. They're all over the world, and I have partially engineered my business model around the idea that if you have a very easily targeted niche, you're able to market to them quite efficiently and quite effectively. Mm -hmm. And word of mouth can spread in that industry much easier than if you're trying to look for a broad category. If it was 30 years ago, a person like me couldn't exist. You mm -hmm. couldn't be a marketing consultant for architecture firms <laughs> of size one person to 20 people. Like that just, that would not have worked. But so as far as what the social media world has enabled in terms of business development, it's actually made it possible to focus on an extremely narrow uh, use case for your services and then sort of scale that to the whole world. I work with clients all over the world and that just happens because I'm not interchangeable with a lot of people in the marketing space because of my experience in the architecture field. So, for architecture, I think we have this sort of general reluctance to kind of pigeonhole ourselves or focus in on one particular thing. But really, we're doing ourselves a bit of a disservice because the best business development strategy that is made possible by social media is to really just focus on a very targeted group of people and create stuff just for them because there's no communication barrier. Countries mm -hmm. don't matter. Like, things don't matter. So, um yeah. So, and uh, I know what was your second question? <laughs> uh, how does one um, prevent themselves from falling into the traps of social media, which is basically creative, yes. creating addictive behaviors? Yes. Yeah. So I think the best thing that you can do is be a bit of an omni-channel firm. And that means being a little bit unbiased and a little bit unprejudiced towards all of the major social media channels. Mm -hmm. Um because then you start to see that they all have different roles and they also solve different purposes and that there isn't a single social media platform that is all important that you just need to be there. In mm -hmm. At least in the Australian architecture space, Instagram is thought of as the only, you know, the only game in town. Um, and I've been told that in the UK, Twitter is seen that way and I guess in the United States, Facebook and, prop and increasingly Instagram is seen that way now. But um, when you believe that there is one gatekeeper and one source of status and projects and, and those kinds of things, uh, I think you begin to develop a feeling that your life really depends and your livelihood depends on your success or mm -hmm. failure on this one platform. But instead, those things are largely out of your control and you really don't want to be reliant on one individual platform. So, look, I, uh, I, uh, the, I, look, at, I look at marketing from the perspective of my focus is on the quality of whatever content I'm making. If I was making architecture, it would be my photos as the output. Um, if I was, uh, in my case, I'm writing, I'm making podcasts, I'm recording videos, and mm. I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm just focused on the work. Um, then I have a pretty broad 
unbiased, emotionless point of view of the social media channels. And I just look at each one individually and go, how could I take my writing, my video or my podcast and recycle them and repurpose them and put them out on those platforms? Mm -hmm. Um, A bit like Joe Rogan in a sense, I kind of do that, then walk away. I mean, sometimes so much that I have to remind myself to go back and actually respond to people's comments. Mm -hmm. And you can find yourself getting very distant and selfish on social media. And that's always, to me, that's more of a battle, an internal struggle is to insulate yourself from this feeling of addiction or anxiety about how the platform is treating you while also still keeping your heart a little bit in the game so that you're just actually a nice person and a participant and a contributor. Mm -hmm. Because if you just really, if you just see social media as some, uh, you know, loud uh, bullhorn that you can just fill with messages and and walk away and can can get back to the drawing board. Um, That's not going to be appreciated by any audience really. Mm -hmm. So there always has to be a sort of reciprocity and and back and forth between you and the people that follow you. So um, it's, it is a fine, it is a fine balance, but you tend to, when you create content and you share it and you're generous and you share your ideas you tend to find that you get very, very positive feedback and mm-hmm. feedback that quickly turns into real relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, social media is a great way of generating long distance professional friendships and, and things like that. So, well, yeah, that's how you and I connected. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, we are almost like a community of marketing communication people in the architecture and design and creativity space that we're dotted all over the world. And we kind of, meet up and talk and we're like we formed our own little professional like affiliation it's great mm-hmm. um and but that's but that's it we're niched right so i think um yeah I, I think that's still the key you just you still need to figure out your little tribe who they are where they hang out what they do what they're interested in and just be be part of that group of people mm-hmm. so our friends at bowerbird nick and ben mm-hmm. um have been advocating of late that uh, an Instagram uh, profile is the new portfolio. And I strongly mm-hmm. disagree with that because <laughs> I don't think the idea of putting your content and your work on someone else's platform and being at the, at the mercy of what that platform does with it is a good long-term strategy because if Instagram gets sold to someone else tomorrow or it shuts down for any reason, then you're screwed. Mm. Um, not to say that it's not good to be on those platforms as we've been discussing in the last Mm -hmm. 20 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. Um, but I find there's a real danger in saying, okay, I'm just going to put all my eggs in one basket and that basket is someone else's platform as opposed to having a website that you own and you can move from, uh, hosting service to hosting service and, and, and that is yours. What's your take on that? Well, my answer is always do both. Um, <laughs> but because, you know, I think there is an argument to that that makes sense, but what it, because it's the, the danger of being, uh, building your entire world about around Instagram is obvious because what if you had done it on MySpace or Vine, where would you be right now? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it reminds me of the finance and investment world. There's always this idea of there's a group of gold bugs who buy gold bullion because why invest in equities? One day the, the whole market will collapse, but ultimately these things unwind pretty slowly and you're a very adaptable person if, if you're keeping your finger on the pulse. As long as once a year, I think you review the kind of health and results that you're getting from any platform, you're able to make changes mm. um, and identify better alternatives. So I think we can adapt and we can keep on moving and then each of those individual platforms will bring you the audience because uh, the audience isn't coming in other ways. Um, the, the social media platforms are important and popular because people use them and large swathes of society are using them on a daily or monthly basis. Um, and there really is no way of getting around that. I think that what tends to happen and the purpose that social media will often serve is that it takes, it can help to take an architecture firm from obscurity to being very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you're very well known, it doesn't matter what platform you're on. You can go to absolutely any platform. You can send people to your website. You can get them on your mailing list because they're going to be with you for a very long time. Um, So I sort of look at if I was a new firm or if I was starting down this road, I would be extremely focused on one platform to begin with that best aligned with what I'm good at and the type of clients that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. I would try to grow as quickly and effectively and reach as many people as I possibly could on that platform Mm -hmm. and 
almost reach escape velocity where I can turn off the fuel tanks and I can just float up in space because you're not coming down at that point. You're in orbit. Mm. And I, I think that's the role of individual platforms. At that point, I would start to spread out onto other platforms and say, hey, I'm over on LinkedIn. I'm over on Medium. I'm over on Twitter. Go follow me here. And then it's about cross-promoting your other platforms and encouraging people to follow you for different kinds of content in different places. So, but initially you're, you're going to be really focused on one platform because yeah, there's a lot of different architecture firms out there and that you can't, you've only got so much time in the day. And as an architect, you don't have a, a, a large staff of people sitting around doing nothing all day. Everyone's working really hard. We don't have a lot of time. So we can't spread the precious time that we have across every single platform, we just sort of focus on one key area. So let me ask the question that you just answered because I was going to ask you, I think what <laughs> yeah. you just talked about is, uh, I was going to ask you what you would recommend a young firm starting today uh, mm. to do on social media. And I think you've just answered that. Answer. Well, sort of, I, 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 I think focus is the key. And that's really that answer. It's, it's not trying to set yourself up like a more established brand. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the real sophistication in marketing strategy is about actually looking at where am I right now? Like what stage am I actually at and what's appropriate for me at this stage? So it's about baby steps. You wouldn't, you might really admire a firm that's been in the, been in the game for 10 or 15 years and you go, okay, well, I'm just going to emulate them. But what they're doing on social media at the stage that they're at won't work for you. And what they did to get there will definitely not work with work for you. So we need to always be quite, quite real about where we are at. Um, as far as general recommendations for, new practices um i would sort of say this is just my personal opinion and it's kind of specific advice that i'm going to just give out as general advice so just a bit of a caution but i think video and writing are two areas that are completely undersaturated in the architecture industry um it's not even like two social media platforms we're not using it's two of the three entire categories of media are uh, completely undersaturated. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, a, there is a lot of things that you can do in those two areas that you basically are not facing competition because you've got a resource that, that the old money in the architecture industry does not have, which is time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got the time to actually write and make video. And you, so, so by doing that, you're able to access a really, really big audience. And, and so what if that doesn't end up being all about the kind of award-winning photos of your work. I mean, those will still be there too, but I think they'll be the least important part of your marketing. If you're thinking about ideas, um, making people's lives better, making them smarter, inspiring them, educating them, doing all of those fantastic things that you can do with writing and video. So that's what I'd be really, really focused on as a new, uh, a new practice. Um, and then I'd leave the, leave the whole portfolio thing to the other guys. There's plenty of architects out there that are, all competing on the basis of whose portfolio looks the shiniest, um, mm-hmm. I would just let them do that and I would be completely focused on longer form communication. I, I agree with you. And I was having that conversation today with a, a friend of mine who's also in the, in the marketing space for architects. And, and yeah, there's a critical lack of uh, thought leadership. I hate this term thought leadership, but mm. it's, I haven't found a better replacement because it's, it's a bit of corporate speak that's been overused. But I think uh, putting your thoughts out there and, and a shining example of that, again, we go back to him, is, is uh, Andrew Maynard because he started mm. writing um, very controversial things that are not mm-hmm. that controversial actually, but that mm-hmm. were controversial for the industry when he wrote them like 15 years ago. Yep. And that's how he started his practice. And those pieces yep. are still online to this day and people still read them like 50 yep. years later. And I think that's like, he was 25 years ahead of everyone, but I think that you're right. Writing video, I'm, I'm not an expert at it, so I'm not so sure, but it seems like it's also underused. Um, and, and again, you've preempted my, uh, my next <laughs> question, which was uh, which platform should people invest in? So you've talked about video and writing. Are there platforms mm. that are, up and coming that you've seen that uh, could potentially really uh, have an impact in the architecture industry? Yeah. So there's, okay. You asked about platforms specifically, and I think it's really funny to call this one an up and coming, but YouTube, Mm -hmm. um, YouTube is, it's massive. It is at least in Australia, it's as big as Facebook. Mm -hmm. I would say that the users are more active and engaged than anywhere else on the internet. I think they watch, you know, it's just, it is an incredibly popular um, platform, not just for entertainment, but uh, education and research. It's 
it's really coming up fast to Google as far as how people use it as a search engine. Mm-hmm. And it is just, it's, it's a fantastic platform that uh, a large percentage of the population is active on of, from all walks of life, but a very, very small number of architects are doing anything on YouTube. So I sort of see YouTube as there's this big, big gap between the number of people there to see the content and the people producing it. And mm-hmm. uh, I think for the few that are doing it, they're doing incredibly well and building uh, absolutely phenomenal audiences on that platform. So that's one that I think is useful. Um, I think podcasting in general is, I mean, it's a trend that is probably, uh, it's become a bit of a joke that I think everybody has a podcast, but. Um, <laughs> or two. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but uh, it's, it's really not about what everyone else is doing. It's about what are, what are the people in your industry doing? And um, at least in my local market, um, I have, I think, one of the three architecture podcasts in a country of 25 million people, right? So, um, mm-hmm. it's even it's, in North America, there's not that many of them. And a lot of the podcasts are more business focused. Like yeah. there, there's the business of architecture. There's, um, uh, I forget the name one. It's, that's a, a pun on entrepreneur. There is uh, uh, yeah, entree architect. Entree architect. Yeah. There's a uh, life of an architect, but they all have a little bit of the same tone. I find. Yes. Yep. So I agree with you. There's probably an opportunity to do um, to do something. And this is what this actually this actual podcast that's not even named yet um, mm. is about. Is taking one topic and really diving mm. deep mm. into it. And so today we're talking about social media, and the next one will be something else. Yeah. Um, because I think this is what architects need to hear, right? This is what you need to do with your social media or what or directions you can take based on who you are and, and what mm. you believe in. Um, so I, I, I want to wrap up soon, but there's a more general concern question that I have around social media. And I was telling you earlier, I read this book on Facebook called Zucked, which mm. is a very scathing Uh, account of how Facebook has been set up historically and how it operates, which I would summarize as uh, Facebook has been built from the get-go to get free data from its users and monetize that data for extreme profit in the in the favor mm-hmm. of Facebook. Not that this is inherently negative, but the way it's been done is that Um, there's more and more of a consensus out there that the people who give away their privacy to be on Facebook don't really get uh, what they should in return if you consider how much profit this generates for Facebook and how many issues it has uh, brought about for its users. Yes. So what, what about the privacy concerns around using social media platforms, Facebook in particular, but really any social media platform because they all operate under the same premise. Yes. And um, those businesses general lack of transparency as to what they do with the data they collect and how they monetize it and Mm -hmm. how much control we have on our data. uh, Because right now we have none. We just put stuff out there then they own it and then it's out of our control forever. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, um, you know, when they, when some big expose comes out about Facebook and they say that Facebook has been doing this and selling this information to advertisers, um, I'm glad to say that I run loads of Facebook ad campaigns. So I'm technically one of these uh, (laughs) evil advertisers who should not be named. Um, So happy to answer sort of any curiosities about how that platform works and what you can do. I think actually being inside the platform as a paying customer of Facebook, um, I'm personally not too concerned. Um, I know that that's pretty counterintuitive because I think everybody's kind of concerned. But I mean, my uh, I think the worst, um, apart from a few outlying cases of very, very complicated hacking and engineering around the creation of apps and things like that to leak people's data in the kind of Cambridge Analytica situation, the general day-to-day process of how Facebook works with advertisers is actually feels to me quite innocent and quite okay. Like I can open up Facebook Ad Manager and I can I can target people based on their interests. And what that means is I can type in architecture and I can show, I can promote a project to people in who live in a certain area who are interested in architecture. Mm-hmm. And Facebook has put them in that bucket because they visit websites like ArcDaily and Design and they tend to click on and like and share pictures of buildings. So... I, I don't see it as that um, that threatening. I think what what alarms people is 
the truth of the algorithm that Facebook does know more about you than you probably know about yourself. It knows more <laughs> about you than your partner. It knows more about you than your mother knows about you. And that's really true. It does know a lot about you. Um, and it never forgets. It knows exactly what you were interested in and doing and writing and clicking 10 years ago when you first signed up for Facebook. So it has this sort of, it is quite scary. But on the other hand, Facebook is just a big engineering challenge and it's a server that basically looks at us as individuals and sort of recognizes that we actually aren't as individual as we think we are. It goes, you know, oh, you like this, you're pretty special. Well, fortunately, I found 200,000 people who are exactly the same as you and I'm going to put you guys in a big block and sell you to advertisers. Mm -hmm. So, we, it, it, is, it is not as nuanced as it seems as coming from like an advertiser's perspective. I can, I can target you on the basis of very superficial things, which is okay. Mm -hmm. I think where Facebook gets a little bit evil is actually the bad um, ethics and actions of small businesses and large businesses who collect data on their own websites and then use that data to, to do things on the Facebook advertising platform that they shouldn't be doing. Um, Such as? Well, really, a really simple example would be to, um, you know, buy a list of email addresses or something like that of a very specific group of people, mm -hmm. upload that email list to Facebook ad platform, tick a box saying, I, I swear that these are my customers, even mm -hmm. though they're not, mm -hmm. and then start targeting them with absolutely whatever ads I want. And there is a sort of approval process for ads, but I can really do what I want, basically, once I have somebody's contact information. So, there are companies that, I mean, marketing, uh, the marketing world um, is people will do whatever they can until Facebook removes the feature. It doesn't matter whether mm -hmm. it's right or wrong. And so, mm -hmm. you can always assume that if anything um, illicit is possible on these platforms, there are marketers who are doing it for the brands that you know and trust. Um, yeah, but you can argue that those people would do unsavory things outside of Facebook too. So it's not inherent to the platform. Um, and, and I think it speaks to a more general philosophy around marketing, business development and advertising. If that's what, uh, the listeners to the pod, to this podcast yeah. will want to take on is to, uh, do it in a way that's, that's honest and transparent and, and, mm and not do something because it's possible, but really yes. weigh, weigh the moral and ethical implications mm -hmm. of what it is that you're doing. And I don't think yep. architects are in any danger of running afoul of um, nope. morality and ethics because they're yep. professional services. I, I think that architects would really resonate with um, Gary Vaynerchuk um, on YouTube. I mean, obviously a very well-known marketer, but mm -hmm. he does not go in for pop-ups and tracking and tricks and hacks that you can do he's always about giving value being patient doing giving without expectation mm -hmm. expecting good things to take 10 years you know so that's mm -hmm. that's really more in the mindset of um i think what architects are looking for is create good content be slightly um open-minded about the type of content that an architect can make um make it as good as you mm -hmm. possibly can um, and continue to just do that over and over and over again, and that will work. I think when um, when architecture firms get a little bit bigger um, and they start to rely on marketing teams to manage their social media, marketers are under a tremendous amount of pressure to produce results in an extremely short time frame. Otherwise, they lose their clients. And in the marketing world, you're looking for things that nobody else knows about to get an edge uh, just like finance or, or technology. And so there's a real risk mm -hmm. if, there are, if there are larger directors listening to this, it's, it, you will always get assurances from your marketing people that they are ethically sort of representing your business and, and managing your social media. But if you're putting pressure on mm -hmm. them to perform, results are very slow. I try to set realistic sort of expectations with my clients that they shouldn't even really expect a noticeable difference in the first 12 months if they're doing things properly. Um, there'll be small signs that stuff's working, small signs of early traction, but mm -hmm. they're not going to get to the promised land in 12 months. It's going to take a long time. Um, but that's usually a sign that what you're doing is, is actually the right thing to be doing. You can produce sort of 
fake results very quickly or and or do it in a sort of uh, unethical way. But I think long-term architecture firms, I mean, unless you're retiring in the next five years, you're going to be in this business for a very long time. Architects, we grow quite old and we work quite old. You, you're building a brand that could mm-hmm. well and truly last you until you're 80 years of age, you know. Um, so, Or even in some cases outlast you because there's firms that have been around for... 120 years. And, yeah, it's, it's sometimes you know, day-to-day you forget that, but as an architect, there could be people studying your work in 200 years' time, right? Uh, you can't say that of a lot of other jobs. So, um, yeah, yeah. And I think I want to wrap up with this thought is that um, good business development, good marketing uh, yeah. takes time. And uh, a critical issue that I come up against time and time again is uh, people not mm. taking the time to set themselves up in their business development efforts mm. properly and not shooting, for, not playing the long game, but doing quick fixes. And, um, and I'm going to take advantage of this two <laughs> minutes of uh, opinion <laughs> spewing um, to knock on, uh, I want to knock a little bit on PR firms that are primarily f- short-term sure. focused. Um, and I've seen a lot of, I'm not going to name anyone, but I've seen a lot of examples of firms that do unsavory things mm-hmm. for short-term gain and don't necessarily have the long-term interests mm-hmm. of their clients at heart because they keep, yep. get paid a lot of money to produce short-term results. Yep. Um, and I think one thing I've, I've tested in my own work that um, really uh, helps with building trust is to partially base your uh, payments contingent on results. Mm. Um, uh, so that's an idea for the marketers out there. I think if you, uh, if you do work for a client or for an employer, um, there's, there's validity in saying, okay, I'm going to get paid this much to do this work. But if I eat, hit certain milestones, I'm going to get paid this much extra because then we put our money where our mm. mouth is. And uh, we're going to tend to go the extra mile to make sure that what we do produce the, produces the result we promised. And I think there's value in, in not just saying, okay, pay me 20 grand and I'll do all your media campaigns, but um, I might cut corners in the process. And I think that's a dangerous game to play. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> uh, just because I think Neither so much of the stuff I, is like out of your control a lot of the time. Um, there are so many links in the chain and... Um, look, I think that I think what an incentive structure that I would be more likely to advance with my clients would be to actually charge them less over time rather than more. That if you continue to work with me over the long term, I will reduce my consulting rate with you. It's not something that I've done, but um, the where I get that precedent from is in the wealth management world. Um, there are fiduciaries who understand that their clients sort of smart incremental um, progress over a number of years Mm -hmm. and their ability to stick to the plan and not panic and not, you know, sell all their, you know, all their retirement because the market's Mm -hmm. dipped 5%. You know, they want this sort of Mm long-term point of view and the way that they reward clients for sticking around with them for the long term is to go, okay, after one year we decrease our fee by this much, then this much, then this much. And that's a fantastic way, I think, to show that, you're partnering up with what produces success. Now, for me and my clients, I've been full-time as a consultant for three years now and I've got plenty of clients who I've been working with for two to three years and they are the ones who are really getting phenomenal career-altering results um, at the moment and Mm -hmm. um, it's about not necessarily making smart recommendations. I look back on some of the things that I recommended um, early in in my consulting process and I think they were probably my victims more than my clients. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's about making sort of little 5% improvements each month, month over month and doing it consistently and that adds to a lot of kind of compounding results over the course of a few years. So, I would probably be, Mm -hmm. I would probably be framing um, my relationships in the future around the idea of um, stick with me, not for my financial benefit, but for yours, because you're going to get the most results if you stay committed to this over a period of time. Um, you know, I think somebody who, uh, I think even if a firm is just creating a, a plan that will keep them committed, even if they're not working with an agency or a consultant, as long as they're just doing a little bit all the time and consistently, they will get much better results than a firm that puts on a really big extravaganza once a year um, or so, you know. So, 
So yeah, that's, but that's definitely, you, you, you want to th- certainly think about that with your clients. Um, I think the typical, uh, the typical model is that, you know, people just go either I lock, I lock you in for 12 months and then at the end of 12 months, you'll leave and find another agency and that's good. We, we got our return on our marketing dollar and I think that happens a lot in the marketing agency space and um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> no, I, I want to challenge sure. your thinking just uh, quickly before we wrap up. But I think if you produce value in the long term, you should charge more and not less uh, because the value of the work you do mm. as it might decrease in terms of the actual work you do. But I, I, I see too many people charging for the, their work based on the amount of work they do when it should, we should all be doing this. It's not just me. I think it's a much better way to do business is to charge based on the value of the work. So if you do one hour of work, but it's yep. worth 50 grand yep. to a client, I don't think there's an, any problem with charging that much. But if you do a hundred hours of work and it yields $2,000 of return to the client, then yep. that work is worth absolutely less than that. So it's, it's also up, to us to do work that's highly valuable to our clients and make yeah, sure they get so, a lot so out of it. So in that example, I mean, I haven't implemented this idea of decreasing pricing over time, but in that example, I'm thinking about the financial world or the real estate world, for example, who charge percentage commissions, which is actually a lot what an architect does, right? We charge oftentimes a percentage of the budget. Mm-hmm. Then what they will do over time is bump a percentage point off their commission. And because the overall asset base is growing over time they're still obviously i think making more money from that client on a dollar basis over time so that doesn't apply in my situation or yours and you made a a great point that uh, value should be the key determinant and i think that where value comes into play or at least the way i understand it is more to do with the size of the company um my say for example my current consulting rate um is is very expensive for very small firms, say a firm that has one person relatively, and to a firm that has yeah. 30 employees and millions of dollars a year in revenue, it is an absolute bargain because I've seen it firsthand with clients mm-hmm. that I can make the same recommendation with firms of two different scales. One will not move the needle at the small scale or if it does, it is unnoticeable. But a single recommendation mm-hmm. can make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference to a large company or more from a single point. So, so I think it does make sense to, you know, they say, um, they say sort of charge, charge the customer, not the project or something like that, charge the client, not the project. Um, so I think there's something to that. And we, and we do get to a point where we will, I guess, figure it out a little bit better. I, I agree with that. And some of my pricing, to be perfectly honest, is uh, based on the size of the companies I deal yep. with. Because if I do um, X type of project with a firm of three people and I do the same project with a firm of 25 people, mm-hmm. the value of this, the exact same work is much yes. higher than a firm of yes. 25 people. Yep. So I, I will not charge the same thing to both firms because there's mm-hmm. also an understanding that there's less return on investment the smaller the firm is. Um, but that that's I think that's a conversation for our next podcast, which is uh, yes. pricing services. And there's a <laughs> lot to talk about in that space. Yep. Um, Absolutely. I do want to thank you for being on this no brand new of uh, not quite figured out podcast. I think it's going to be a fun new adventure. Awesome. No, it was a great time. Thanks, Anna. Uh, thanks for being my uh, guinea pig. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio and edited by Ryan Akhtari. Until next time, ciao.